When I first came in, there wasn't any other mom except me in the United States Senate dealing with this every day. I remember clearly, and it was a long time ago, that my son's school called and said, you need to come get him, he's got a bloody nose. And like any mom, I threw my coat on, raced out the door to run to the school to get him. And I had a male senator say to me, where are you going? We've got votes coming. I said, my son's sick, I gotta go get him. And he goes, you can't do that, you're a United States Senator. And I looked at him and I said, every mom does this. Welcome to Where's My Village, Fortune's podcast about the childcare crisis in America and stories of people who are trying to fix it. I'm Beth Coet, a senior editor at Fortune. Senator Patty Murray is the senior state senator from Washington. A male colleague once called her a mom in tennis shoes. Murray took this attempted insult and proudly made it her identity. She has served in the Senate for 20 years and is currently running for a sixth term. She's also a former preschool teacher and a mom of two. For all of these reasons, child care has been a priority for Murray since she took office in 1992. At the time, she was one of the few advocates for the issue. I would bring up the issue of child care, and it was like, pat Patty on the head, and we'll talk about it later. This is not my issue. It's her issue. It's not the country's issue. And I knew everybody I knew was struggling to find child care. I knew it was a big issue, but I couldn't get people in the nation's capital to really focus on it. You know what really changed that conversation? It was COVID. I don't care if I'm talking to school board directors or I'm talking to community leaders or I'm talking to CEOs. They all bring up the issue of child care. Before COVID, it was sort of a silent problem. People didn't want to talk about it. As a reporter who's been writing about women in business for more than 14 years, I've witnessed what Senator Murray is saying here. Women who really wanted to be taken seriously at work were expected to handle child care on their own, in private. But even before the pandemic, I noticed a generational shift. Younger women were more willing to talk about their identities as moms, and it's not as much of a liability as it was in the past. On a personal note, I should add I'm a mom of a two and a half year old, which means I've only ever been a mom during the pandemic, which has definitely warped my perspective on parenting and childcare. I don't know what normal childcare is supposed to look like, but I know what we've been doing for the past two and a half years is not what I expected. In this episode, we're exploring what the government at every level can do to make childcare more accessible and affordable. We're starting our story with Senator Murray because if there has been any national conversation about childcare in the past 20 years, she's been leading it. As Murray said, COVID made a previously invisible problem very visible, an opportunity she didn't let go to waste. With her Senate colleagues finally waking up to the severity of the problem, Murray strove to tie childcare to a common concern for most Americans, money. We're really trying to educate people about the economic cost to our country to not have a childcare system. The impediment is senators who just think it's your problem if you can't tie childcare and don't realize the impact to their entire community if there isn't childcare available. Imagine how great we could be as an economy and, and a world force if we unleashed that power by providing some basic things for families to be able to go to work and be a part of that. 
Senator Murray was one of the lead architects of the Build Back Better framework. You remember Build Back Better, right? The Build Back Better Act will reduce the cost of childcare by 10 to $15,000. American Families Plan will provide access to quality, affordable childcare. Low and middle income families will pay no more than 7% of their income for high quality care for children up to the age of five. It sounds great, Mr. President, but the problem, of course, is that none of that is really free. The government may not send individuals a bill for any of those items, but that doesn't mean they don't have to be paid for by someone. First introduced by President Biden in March of 2021, it was a series of federal laws designed to help us recover from the pandemic. The original proposal included $400 billion for childcare. The act proved unpopular with Republicans and some Democrats, partially because it would have been funded by tax hikes on high-income Americans. The White House presented a slimmed-down version of the bill in the fall of 2021. As negotiations continued into 2022, Senator Murray fought hard to keep childcare included in the bill. Those negotiations culminated on August 7th when the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The act did not dedicate a single dollar to childcare. We went from $400 billion for childcare to transform the entire childcare and early education system in the United States of America to zero dollars. Julie Cashin is the senior fellow and director for women's economic justice at the Century Foundation. There was not the appropriate recognition that childcare is economic policy. I worked on a study with, with friends from the Center for Economic Policy Research that showed you know, $60 billion coming into the economy if you invest in childcare. And there was money to, that could have paid for it, and it just was left on the cutting room floor. For Cashin and many others who saw Build Back Better as a glimmer of hope, this moment is an emotional one. I'm angry. I'm angry, especially in this moment where we watched the Dobbs decision for the Supreme Court take away abortion rights and the implications that that has for women, right? If people cannot decide when to start their family and then they start their family and find out that the United States does not invest in care infrastructure, does not support mothers, does not support parents, does not support families adequately, it's just creating mass inequality, mass inequities, and it's going to make it harder for women to be in the workforce. It feels to me like a naked power grab to you know, keep women from gaining equality, quite frankly. 1.8 million women left the workforce during the pandemic. A U.S. Chamber of Commerce study found that 58% of women who left their jobs said lack of childcare was the reason why. This all sounds incredibly bleak, but Cashin still sees some glimmers of hope. Before this moment, we've still had problems convincing people this is not a personal failing. This is not a personal problem that you can't figure out your childcare solution. This is something government should be investing in. We should have a public plan for it. And so that hopefully will really contribute to the opportunity coming again sooner rather than later, that we shouldn't have to wait another 50 years. And here's a second glimmer. States have been stepping up to help their residents. In April, New Mexico's governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, announced the state will cover the cost of childcare for many residents for an entire year. 
Childcare is too expensive. That's why we're doing more about it than any other state. For most New Mexico families, you can now get childcare for free. And in November, New Mexicans will vote on a constitutional amendment to ensure access to childcare as a universal right. Back on the East Coast, New York State Senator Jabari Brisport introduced a universal childcare bill in March 2022. That led to Governor Kathy Hochul committing $7 billion to childcare over the next four years. This is the largest investment in childcare in the history of the state of New York. And in June, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser announced $32 million in grants intended to help child care facilities in the city. We know that this is the long-term investment that is needed to close gaps and achievement in our city. The important thing to know about many of these commitments is that they rely, in part, on the $39 billion allocated to states as part of the American Rescue Plan. Those federal funds are set to dry up in 2024 which will leave states scrambling to find money to keep the supports going. States can be as creative as their political will and their budget. And often those who have the political will don't actually have the resources to back it up. In the absence of federal action, we're seeing states become hotbeds for childcare innovation. But that innovation requires money. Coming up, how one New England state and a small city in Kansas are solving that problem. My name's Nicole Donick. I live in Arlington, Vermont. So I have two children. Eve, my son, is seven. And Ode, my daughter, is two. Nicole and her husband moved to Vermont six years ago when Eve was about a year old and Nicole was finishing her PhD dissertation. They immediately found themselves in a common situation. There was no quality childcare nearby. So when I moved up here and Eve was one and a half, the option was at the time called Happy Days Childcare in Arlington. And that is a 30 minute drive from our house, but we couldn't afford to put him in full time. So um, we had him in three days a week from like 8.30 to 2.30 or something like that. That meant Nicole was spending at least two hours, three days a week, commuting to daycare. This made finishing her dissertation really hard. She decided to move Eve to a center just over the border in New York State. I kind of was in a crunch with getting my PhD, and I realized I had a year to finish it, or it wasn't going to happen. I made the decision to put Eve in the New York center down the road because I could afford to put him in five days a week till five o'clock. That did give Nicole more time to finish her dissertation, but she feels this extra time for her came at the expense of her son. He learned how to flip the bird there. (laughs) Even recently, when I mentioned that childcare center, he said all he remembered was being yelled at there. And so I feel a lot of shame and regret and yeah. It's like, you're always making sacrifices. Nicole's career has not been traditional. 
She spent years as a dancer, and then, after earning her PhD, she worked with faculty at a local college to create a teaching position for herself. So Ode was due in February, and I was set to teach a class. But then the pandemic hit. She was born, and then in March, everything shut down. My son, his school shut down, and he was doing zoom school from home and i was just like i can't do this (laughs) can't do this and so i canceled that class and it was soul crushing so after canceling her class in the spring of 2020 nicole's relationship with the college fell apart and her teaching position just vanished nicole has not been able to find a steady job in her field that also allows her to care for her kids Because her husband earns more, they decided his job has to come first. I'm guessing plenty of working moms out there can identify with Nicole's situation. She sees it as crushingly common. I think so much of the way this happens, the way things play out for women is so tacit. Doesn't have to be named or spoken. Just happens. I have a lot of privilege. I can't even speak to, for example, the way women of color, mothers of color, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds where they really are worrying about getting food on the table. But the pandemic just, it showed how precarious my situation had been all along. I worked really hard to create a, a, a balance for myself where I could invest in my children and our relationship and I could invest in my passions and my career and what I had spent over a decade working toward. And it was just so easy, so easy for it to all fall apart. Three out of five of our youngest kids in Vermont do not have access to the childcare they need. Those who do find it feel incredibly lucky, and yet they're paying about a third of their household income for it. That's more than any other household expense. And the early educators on the quality side are making about $14 on average in Vermont without benefits. So as you can see, something's broken. Allie Richards is the executive director of Let's Grow Kids. The organization's mission is to ensure affordable access to high-quality childcare for all Vermont families by 2025. Let's Grow Kids has been doing this work for 25 years, and last year, it accomplished something massive. H-171, which we affectionately call the Child Care Bill, it's landmark historic legislation we passed in Vermont last legislative session in 2021 that basically sets the stage for a high quality, affordable childcare system in Vermont. It literally put into statute two twin goals. And I'm the mom of three old twins, so I love the twin goals. So this bill literally says, as Vermonters, we aren't gonna be satisfied unless we have 10% of household income as a hard cap for how much you pay for childcare, regardless of how many children you have. In the same time, it says, Early educators, the folks who are trained to do this work, it's where quality, high quality sort of absolutely starts and ends, they need a minimum compensation scale. 
The passage of H-171 is an enormous feat and one of the first of its kind in the country. And here's one of the most amazing parts. H-171 passed in a way that is currently very rare in America, with tripartisan support. We had a 146 to 1 vote out of the House, and we had a 30-0 vote out of the Senate. And then we had our Republican governor sign that. So none of that happened by accident. Okay, so what does the passage of H-171 actually mean? Will every family in Vermont have immediate access to affordable care? Not quite. This makes me think back to what Julie Cashin said. States need both political will and resources to make meaningful change in childcare. In Vermont, political will is there, but the question is, will there be enough resources to make H-171 a reality? We may not know the answer to that for a few years. The only immediate funding included in the bill was a one-time $12.5 million investment in childcare infrastructure. The source of additional money is still a question mark. A fiscal study is underway to put a price tag on fully implementing the bill and lay out some funding sources. The findings are due back in December, but Allie already has an idea of where the money might come from. The business community is the punchline for a variety of reasons, because they're the ones actually saying, look, we can show you also how our bottom line is still improved even if we shoulder new revenue. Our workers are not productive. They're not here a lot, you know? We just don't function, let alone can we grow. Plus, they're working in a very hard economic environment in Vermont, which is solved by fixing childcare. So they are some of our best advocates. And, you know, we had the president of our biggest bank, who's one of our top business champions, say, all right, I'm ready to go. I told my friends at a dinner party last night, to not fall off their chairs if they see me on TV advocating for increased revenue. So far, the passage of H-171 seems idyllic almost. A business community willing to give up revenue to fund childcare? A social safety net bill in an extremely divided country receiving tripartisan support? It sounds almost like a dream. Digging deeper, we learned that it wasn't all handshakes and harmony to get to this point. So many of our House members and senators are retired, and they were far removed from from that struggle of working families and particularly young families. Senator Becca Ballant, a Democrat, has been a Vermont state senator since 2014 and became Vermont's pro tem, the leader of the state Senate, in 2021. She was a key player in getting H-171 passed. Many people would say to me, I don't really understand why we need this. Why can't moms, because it was always moms, they were not thinking that there were actually dads at home with their kids too. Like, so that was also a flag. It's like, well, why can't moms just drop their kids off at grandma's house or a neighbor's house? That's what we did. That's what they should be doing. Ballant pointed out, this is what happens when your political leaders are aging and out of touch with the needs of young families. But the problem wasn't just a generational misunderstanding. They were definitely pretty overt comments made that were sexist, which is just like, well, maybe we actually don't want women in the workforce. Maybe kids would be better off if women were actually home. And these were, I just want to be clear, these were not Republicans. These are, these are people within my own caucus. Okay, so that's what we were up against. I actually found it pretty shocking that some of Senator Ballant's colleagues not only had these thoughts, but were willing to say them out loud. So how did Ballant and her allies overcome all of that? 
Well, the current makeup of Vermont's government helped. For the first time in Vermont's history, the Speaker of the House and the Senate pro tem are women. Both majority leaders are too. Plus, in an unexpected twist, the Zoom reality of the pandemic played a role. So something happens in your emotional and psychological commitment to an issue when someone from your home district is in front of you on a Zoom saying, I live in your town, I see you at the post office, you know, I need you to stand up on this issue because here's how it's impacting me and the other people. And then it doesn't, it's not theoretical anymore. And remember how Ali said some of H-171's biggest champions are Vermont's business titans? The ones who are making proclamations to their friends about childcare at their dinner parties? It took work to get them on board. Part of the hook that we had to use was to say, look beyond yourself. How is it impacting the economy of your part of Vermont? Vermont, we're tiny, right? We're like 600,000 people. We had 25,000 people just completely check out of the workforce. Now, in New York or D.C., that's a rounding error, right? But in, in Vermont, that's a really big deal. So it sounds like framing this as an economic issue was really essential. Absolutely. Which I have mixed feelings about personally. Of course. I mean, they always say politics makes for strange bedfellows. I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I get it. We all know money talks. So I understand why some people didn't even acknowledge the childcare crisis until it started to hit their bottom line. But it's also really painful for me to think that a lot of people don't believe that children and families are worth investing in, in and of themselves. But economics seem to be a sticking point all around. Allie Richards essentially has a script she recites when she comes across someone who isn't convinced childcare is worth investing in. So it's actually become a bit of a joke where some people say, wow, I'm so glad that you and lots of her kids are focused on childcare. It's such an important issue. It's not really my thing, but glad someone's on it. And I politely say, tell me what you care about. And I will tell you why childcare is your thing. Childcare is one of those rare levers that when you pull it, it has a profound impact on so many things that we care about. Basically every dollar that's invested to fund and fix the childcare system goes to a human. It goes to lift a sector of almost entirely women out of poverty wages. That has a huge ripple effect on our economy. We've got good data in Vermont and across this country that people are making life-changing decisions about whether to have kids at all or whether to have more than one kid or multiple kids based on the lack of affordable, high-quality childcare. That's bone-chilling, by the way, if you ask me, at a societal level. But think about the demographic pull that that has for a rural state like Vermont that has a very aging demographic. That's really crunching us in Vermont and across this country. And this one, it's not just good for our economy, it's the right thing to do for our kids. The fact that these are our kids, for crying out loud, and we haven't moved money around for them is absurd. Allie's passion for and commitment to the full implementation of H-171 has not waned. Here's what she said when asked if Vermont would find the money to fulfill H-171's promise. Not if, but when. <laughs> Let's go, kids. I mean, that's one of those things. We, yeah, yeah. we must succeed, we will succeed, yeah, yeah. and we will. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, it is my job to, right, to, to believe that and execute that. Allie remains optimistic that the state will find the money to turn H-171 from a promise to a reality. In fact, the lag between passage and implementation is all part of the plan. 
we're on track, we're on time. The work of the childcare movement in Vermont this year is to put every single person on notice, to mobilize like our lives depend on it. And then the big moment sort of starts in January, 2023, where you drop the major policy with the revenue and the price tag, and then we pass it. And then Let's Grow Kids is still in existence until December 31st, 2025, to support the implementation of the bill, smooth out any sort of unintended you know, hiccups, and go off into the sunset. <laughs> if you didn't catch the last thing Allie said, she said Let's Grow Kids will dissolve as an organization on the last day of 2025, following what she considers to be the inevitable implementation of the child care bill. This means she's also putting herself out of a job. We have already heard both Allie and Senator Ballant detail the profound economic and social opportunities the bill presents Vermont. But what does this mean for an individual Vermonter like Nicole Donick? Well, it's too late for me. If it comes through, like... The damage is done. And so, like, I don't know. People who are in my position, we've had to make untenable choices. Senator Ballant hopes that when the bill is fully implemented, the people of Vermont will all have access to affordable, reliable childcare. Stories like Nicole's are a reminder that this is not an opportunity. It's an imperative. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I can't, I can't overstate the emotional and psychological impact that this pandemic has had on Vermont families and on parents in particular. And I see this as part of our great readjustment, you know, great reckoning of how we have created an economy that does not value its workers. So I get very emotional about it because I see this tsunami of mental health issues coming, not just for parents, but for, for all of our, our children. And I hope it also sparks conversations about other parts of our economic system that, that don't work for families. So the story of Vermont's H-171 bill is pretty inspiring. But can it be replicated in other states? Vermont lives in many people's imaginations as a progressive bastion in New England, home to Bernie Sanders and Ben and Jerry's. But Allie noted that Vermont is more complicated and more like the rest of America than one might think. Vermont maybe even is written off sometimes because there's a misconception about who we are. We have a Republican governor, <laughs> overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, strong progressive party, and we have deep pockets of rural poverty, right? Like we are absolutely a lab. And we have 50 plus languages spoken in the Burlington district too. We have a huge robust refugee resettlement community as well. And Senator Ballant believes that the success of H-171 is replicable elsewhere if you have the right players involved. So there has to be a coming together of elected officials, advocates, businesses, um, and also philanthropy that can help get it off the ground. And I do think that childcare is a winning issue across partisan lines. And that's not particular to Vermont. And when you can dedicate money to a focused campaign, like that's it, like it can't just be organic. 
living in a state where government officials partner with dedicated activists to pass a transformative law is one way to improve a state's childcare infrastructure. But what happens in a state where government intervention is not really welcome? Let's travel west from Vermont to Kansas, a state smack dab in the middle of the country. You know, we have a strong libertarian streak in Kansas. A lot of Kansans are you know, just very suspicious of, of government, I think would be a, a fair way to say it. Lucas Neese is the assistant city administrator of Lindsborg. Lindsborg is a city of about 4,000 located in central Kansas that found a way to improve its childcare infrastructure as a city rather than waiting for help from the state. In Lindsborg, Kansas, it's the little Sweden lifestyle. We've lived the Swedish life for over 150 years. Lindsborg is also called Little Sweden, a nod to the Swedish immigrants who settled the town in the 1860s. Swedish traditions and customs are still a part of daily life here. Lindsborg is also a town with a history of working together on projects that make their town a better place to live. When I was a kid growing up, we, we established a new playground in town, and it's called the Viking Valley. It was a bunch of small donations went to build this and a bunch of volunteer labor went to build this. And it's really cool because I assisted in in the construction of that, but now my kids are playing on it. That's Chalk Hefner. Chalk has lived in Lindsborg for most of his life and is raising his three kids in the town. For the last 20 years, families in Lindsborg have been relying on a childcare center called the Sprout House to care for their smallest kids. The Sprout House is actually an aging church retrofitted as a childcare center one that has been at or above capacity for years. Chalk explained to our producer Alexis that Sprout House's space issue was a costly one for his family. When my wife became pregnant with our third child, we told our family and then we called our daycare provider and we said, hey, we need to be on your wait list. And uh, they said, great, you know, there's three kids in front of you. We'll see how that shakes out in the next few months. But they had a couple kids move up into the older age group and uh, our spot came open and so... It was either we paid for that or they moved on to the next kid and we went back to the bottom of the list. And I understand it from their point too. You know, it'd be nice to say, hey, uh, I'm a nice guy. Would you would you hold my spot for me? But unfortunately, that's just not the way the world works, right? And so, yeah, we paid for that for quite a while before the little one even hit the ground. <laughs> was it worth it? Yeah, it was. There's a lot of stresses with being a parent, right? And, and childcare is one of them. And so it cost us money to be able to do that, but putting our minds at ease, knowing that we had a spot where, one, we know our kids are cared for well, they're loved, the staff has always been really, really good with our children. Knowing that happens, that was worth it to us, yes. But the facility Chalk and his wife were waiting on and prepaying for left much to be desired. The Sprout House was overcrowded and constantly in need of repair, and it struggled to retain caregivers. There are a few home care providers in the Lindsborg area too, but many require parents to make a lengthy commute. Larry Vanderwig is the CEO of Lindsborg Community Hospital, one of the town's biggest employers. I've also heard of people in our community that have put off having more children because of a lack of child care. And I know it, it's been a few years ago, but we had a physician that we recruited and she happened to have relatively newborn twins. and. You know, one of the uh, keys to her recruitment and being able to come to Lindsburg is, was she had to have childcare, you know, for her twins. And that was a, an acute reality of if we can't find childcare, she may not come to Lindsburg. And, you know, and so then if you don't have a physician, you're, you're less able to provide the care that you need to provide as a hospital. 
Clearly, childcare is a pain point for Lindsborg. But as Chuck mentioned a few minutes ago, Lindsborg is a city with a history of banding together and taking care of each other. In 2017, a group of community leaders came together to form what they call the Strategic Alliance. The goal was to identify and triage Lindsborg's most pressing challenges. The alliance was made up of Larry as the CEO of the hospital, the school district superintendent, the CEO of the local nursing home, and the president of nearby Bethany College. The group identified childcare as its top priority. The first step to fix the problem? Hire Lucas Neese as the assistant city administrator. We did not assume that solving childcare would mean that uh, the assistant city administrator would spend half of my time on childcare, but we realized that this little center that was operating out of a kind of a Sunday school room at a church and then a, a house built in 1914 or 1912, that they did not have the capacity in addition to operating that facility to also plan a what turned out to be an 11,000 square foot facility and do the fundraising for that, um, you know, about 3.5 million in fundraising. That was just not, you know, they were too busy taking care of kids. So Lucas's job was to step in and help raise over $3 million to build that 11,000 square foot facility. The new Sprout House, also known as the Lindsborg Child Development Center, opened in June. It's a state-of-the-art facility designed for the little people who inhabit it. Here's Chalk again. It's funny to me, like seeing a small toilet, you know, but it's a size of toilet that's meant for small people. And then also they've got different levels of sinks. And so uh, the little ones can learn how to wash hands. There'll be a field out there for them to run around on and, and kick balls and do different things like that. But then there's also going to be a playground area in the back that is just a large space for kids to be running around in. Raising $3.5 million to build a facility like this in a town of 4,000 people with an average income of around $52,000 is no small feat. Lucas explained how they did it. So the, the construction cost is about $3.1 million. Uh, we did some innovative financing on that. So we have probably fundraised about, I think, $2.8 million. And that is uh, in a partnership with our community foundation, it is in an endowment. And so that will generate income and over time then we'll pay off debt using primarily that as a source. The American Rescue Plan funds available to states, the ones we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, also help with the startup costs. And private funds have poured into the endowment too. Those will be even more crucial in the coming years as the federal funds are set to expire. All of the COVID money that's come down from the federal government, some of that is going to be invested by the state in improvements. And so I think there's some money over the next year that, that could be pretty substantial. And so how do you, how do you handle one-time grants so that you're not just delaying the inevitable? Because I, I think that's happened a lot in childcare over the last 30, 40 years is we've, we've delayed the inevitable and, and are just getting by. And, and we're really committed to not just getting by. While the Lindsborg community has been immensely supportive of the Sprout House project, the town's not a utopia. There has been pushback, particularly around the cost of tuition at the facility, which is at or above the market rate in Kansas. It's also higher than it was at the original Sprout House. Lucas remembers a conversation with a council member about the higher tuition. I said, yeah, it's what it costs. And, you know, she looked at me like I had two heads. And, and then, you know, as we had another meeting in which we looked at our budget, you go, oh, yeah, the way that we get away from paying eight bucks an hour and losing teachers every three months is by charging enough tuition to be able to provide a, 
a reasonable standard of living to, to teachers. Because childcare is just so difficult to provide in an economical fashion, there's a tendency to want to use, you know, sort of duct tape and bailing wire to get through it, but that doesn't make folks feel good about investing their lives in a community. There was one thing that many of the Sprout House stakeholders and donors understood. It was that investing in childcare in Lindsborg was investing in the town's long-term prosperity. Rebecca Vanderwig, married to hospital CEO Larry Vanderwig, is also a lifelong Lindsborg resident and a current city council member. Rebecca and Larry's kids are teenagers now, but they attended Sprout House when they were little. When the council voted to move forward with the Sprout House project, none of its members had kids or even grandkids enrolled there. Um, then on Saturday morning, there is a community conversation about child care and a new proposal that will be presented to the community. This meeting is for everyone in Lindsborg. doesn't matter if you've got kids, if your kids have totally grown and or you're just somebody that cares about the growth of this community. There's a probably a pretty good awareness that if you want to keep a small town vibrant, you've got to have young families in the town and you've got to have jobs and, and just the environment just has to be really good there. And so I think it must have just been clear to people that childcare clearly is going to play an important role in the long term viability and health of our community. But Rebecca said there's something even more fundamental going on here. I think there's a lot of pride in Lensborg and and I think this is just maybe a place where that pride kind of bubbled up and just people said, what's more important than caring for our kids? Okay, so Vermont and Lindsborg, Kansas are inspiring and hopeful examples of how states and cities can improve their childcare infrastructure when they have the resources to do it. But I can't help but think about all the American parents who don't live in Vermont or Lindsborg or New York or New Mexico or D.C. What happens for them? Why is a problem that is so universal, so difficult to solve? Why are we reinventing the wheel state by state and city by city? It's just also piecemeal. I keep thinking back to something Julie Cashin said during our conversation. What we have seen time and time again is that if we want a level playing field, if we want a fair shot for families no matter where they're from, we need the federal government to put the money in. We started out reporting this podcast looking for solutions to the child care crisis. And in a lot of ways, we found one. Guess what? It's federal money. But we all know that in this current climate, this is not going to happen. Maybe the reality for now is that the people who live in states with the ability to pass laws and build new centers will have an advantage over the Americans who don't. Until the federal government really steps in, American parents will have to look elsewhere for childcare. As you'll hear in the upcoming episodes of Where Is My Village, that elsewhere could be an employer, a startup, or a member of their community. Where Is My Village is produced, written, and reported by Alexis Hott. Nicole Vergala is our editor. Our fact checker is Lushik Lotus Lee. Original music is by Bennett Pastor. Special thanks to everyone we interviewed for this podcast and to Moms Rising, who connected us to the moms we interviewed for this series. Moms Rising is an online and on-the-ground organization of more than one million mothers and their families. Megan Arnold is our executive producer. Where Is My Village is a production of Fortune Media. Fortune Media.